Hello, everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. My name is Joe Lowry, and today I'm joined, as always, by the one, the only, the Jordan Angeli. Jordan, you got a lot going on today. <laughs> There's U.S. Women's National Team Olympic Games coming up. There's MLS left and right. There's news coming out of Major League Soccer all the time now. Cough, cough, Atlanta. How are you? Take a deep breath. What's going on? I'm good. I moved to Ohio by, uh, you know, in Columbus with the Ohio State University, and I all of, all of a sudden become the Jordan Angeli. <laughs> how close? How um, close are you it. to Ohio State? Are you are you getting Buckeye fans oh. everywhere or what? Oh yeah, like a I'm a mile. I live. Like oh a mile shoot, and a half from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Close. The Ohio State, the Jordan uh, Angeli. Yeah, the Jordan <laughs> Angeli. I'm good. I'm good. It was a good weekend. I can't complain and yeah a lot of like you said there's just this has been the the summer of soccer it just is not ending and it's kind of nice we're talking a lot of good games some interesting games but um joe it's what we like to do it is what we like to do and we're not really here to dive into the news i just want to say this Atlanta thing is insane. Uh, everybody, make sure you drink water, even if Gabriel Hinze won't let you. Uh, I think it's good for you. Staying hydrated is important. But we're, we're here to talk about Minnesota United and the Seattle Sounders, the game that was on ESPN on Sunday on national TV. Minnesota snapping the Sounders' unbeaten streak to start the year with a 1-0 win for Adrian Heath's team. This is kind of a weird game, Jordan. Uh, we had Raul Ruiz Diaz shooting from half field in the fourth minute. And then we had the entire crowd <laughs> singing Bohemian Rhapsody after the first half water break. Um, so there was a lot going on in addition to the on-field stuff. What did what did you make of this game? Did you think it was as weird as I did? Yeah, it was, it was strange in a number of different ways because of, I think, just the circumstances. You just mentioned water break, and I think that it was hot. And that always impacts the game in a bigger way than sometimes we give it credit for. Yeah. Um, both teams maybe – Definitely more Seattle than Minnesota, but without some really key players. And when you're talking about cohesion and chemistry and what you really are expecting of a group at this point of the season, I think that played a big part into this being a little bit weird and maybe a little bit of a um, not the game that we expected between Minnesota and Seattle, because this has grown into like a pretty good, typically a a pretty good game, you know, from last year going in or in, um, the cup run where Seattle outed Minnesota right there in the the Western Conference final. And then the first game of the season was, you know, a lot of Minnesota at the beginning of the game and then Seattle coming and and beating them for nothing, I think, at home. So you expected a little bit more of like a high-flying game, but I think it also speaks to how Minnesota has managed and and shored some things up defensively. I thought this game didn't have a ton of rhythm. There was was a flow to it in that I think Minnesota did start off – hotter than Seattle did. They they were pressing. They were the protagonists at the beginning of this game, but they really weren't using their pressure to create many high-quality chances. They had some chances, but not a ton. And then Seattle grew into the game a little bit as the first half wore on. And then the second half, they also grew into the game. And then they get scored on by Robin Lode in the 81st minute, and they lose that momentum. And then they get the ball back because Minnesota just don't want to concede at that point. They want those three points. And it just felt like, yes, there's a pattern here. But there's never a ton of rhythm. I thought it was super physical. This game, I thought there were yeah. bodies flying everywhere. There were so many fouls. There were cards. I mean, there was a lot going on here, Jordan. 
which can happen when it's hot and you're a little bit more tired. So you're going to probably foul more than typical because you're lunging at balls and you don't have the maybe energy to get into the right place. Uh, yeah, it was choppy and... Um, I think it was a game that you and I talked about. Oh, let's let's look at this because of Seattle's run and because of Minnesota and their real turnaround from those first few games of season to now gaining some points and maybe getting a little momentum and incorporating these new players into what they're doing. It had uh, on paper a lot of looks of, okay, this could be a really fun one to break down. And not that it wasn't fun. It just wasn't what we expected, I would say. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about this game. Let's talk about Minnesota to begin with because they were on the front foot early. Specifically looking at those new players, Adrian Heath had his team in a 4-2-3-1, which we pretty much expect from them every game at this point. Uh, again, some ro- some rotation from this team, just like there was with Seattle. But back four, then it was Will Trapp and Hassani Dotson at the base of midfield from right to left in attacking midfield, Robin Ludd, Reynoso, and Franco Fragapane, and then Adrian Hunu up top. And those last two players I mentioned are the new signings. Jordan, they were high pressing. They were stepping up. They were they were blocking off all sorts of angles into midfield. The wingers were high in almost a four two four shape instead of a four four two. They were they were really mm-hmm. trying to take it to Seattle. What did you notice from them? And then more specifically, what did you see from Fragapane, who's a new signing, and then who knew as well, another new guy? Well, I was just really disappointed we didn't have new who and who knew. I mean, <laughs> it would have been. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. The century that would have been great. Oh my gosh, what a missed yeah. opportunity. Uh, Franco Pane, I would say what I've noticed from him is his best asset is definitely on the dribble. I feel like he's a good player. He can get out defenders and he can dribble in. And one of the things that I think really works well with this Minnesota United team is what they had last year with Reynoso and Kevin Molino is Franco Pane likes to tuck in centrally and and almost be like a double number 10 at times with is what I saw in moments with um Reynoso and that works really well because Reynoso likes that he is a combination player he wants to um, pick you apart and I think it worked well against Seattle in moments too and one of the things that I think we'll get onto is you have to be brave and and attack centrally at times against Seattle I think that's there's ways that you can pull them apart in that and so I liked Franco Bonnet in that um, area of the field Um, who knew I'm not quite sure yet I don't know if I love his running. I don't know if it's just he hasn't incorporated into the the team, but I didn't see enough from him to be like, oh, I understand how this is going to fit in long term and how he's going to be successful because he didn't I, I didn't feel like he was super successful in this game. I agree. I don't think he had a ton. Well, he didn't have a ton of high quality looks on goal. He wasn't getting on the end of a ton of chances, and that might not be his issue. That could be Minnesota United's issue. I do think, though, he could complement Fragapane and Reynoso pretty well as this group comes together more. And so these guys come in at the end of May, then we have an international break, and so they still haven't played a ton of minutes with Minnesota United, so we're still seeing this group come together and gel. But who knew? My read on him right now, early days, yes, early days, so big grain of salt, is that he's not this Jesus Ferreira, I'm going to drop in and get on the ball type of forward. He will combine, and he will drop a little bit, but from what I've seen of him in this game and against Portland and against Austin, some other games this season, he likes to stay high 
mostly. And he likes to stay high and make runs in behind. And he had some nice runs in behind in this game. He had a really good one in the 15th minute, starting more centrally than working his way behind some defenders and going diagonally to his left. And that creates space behind, or that creates space in, in really in front of the back line as he drags defenders back, which then opens up opportunities for Fragapane and Reynoso to combine. And so on paper, if everything does mesh together over the next few games or over the course of this season, I think his profile as a player who mostly likes to run and work off the ball could help Fragapane and Reynoso become the new Molino and Reynoso. Because I, I totally agree. That was one note I took on Fragapane in this game is he he doesn't quite fill the Kevin Molino role yet or fill that mold quite yet, but he has the tools to be able to do that. Yeah. And I would just say, I know you and I have talked about this before, is when you're playing against three center backs, the runs are different. And so I would, just judging who knew off of this game is not super fair because the angles is which he would try to receive the ball or how he would get in behind are different when you're playing with just two center backs instead of those three. So um, it is a little bit more difficult and we've found it more difficult for those forwards who do like to occupy center backs and stay a little bit higher. I would say in general in MLS. That's a good point. It's something that I had already forgotten from the last time we talked about this. So Jordan, thank you for reminding me. Well, one uh, quick note on Fragapane before we keep this thing moving. Uh, I totally agree with you, Jordan. His most dangerous asset is his dribbling. But I went mm-hmm. and looked at the numbers to see, okay, is that reflected there? And it's it's kind of not. From the eye test, it seems like, okay, this guy is dangerous on the ball. And he is, right? He can he beat defenders 1v1, 1v2, 1v3 in this game. He had several really dangerous marauding runs forward on the ball, especially with that right foot. But I went and looked at FB Ref, and, and I'm about to read numbers from American Soccer Analysis. His goals added stat, which weighs... Every on-ball action. So it's not a it's not a perfect stat, but it weighs every on-ball action from these players and divides it up into categories. Interrupting, which is more of a defensive stat, passing, receiving, shooting, fouling, and then dribbling. So that last category is the only category, that dribbling category is the only category where Fragapane is in the negative. And I think I think that actually does have some validity because Jordan, you think about this yeah. the player that he is, he's a high volume dribbler. And and I'm sure this metric totally. penalizes players for turning over the ball, right? You lose the ball. Lucas Elorayan yeah. doesn't always show up very well in this metric because he turns the ball over. He's a high-volume, mm-hmm. high-on-the-ball type of player. And so my one point that I'd like to see Fragapane grow on maybe based off that stat, and it's reflected other other places as well, is maybe being a bit more selective as to when he dribbles. Maybe he lays the ball off to Reynoso a little mm-hmm. bit sooner. Maybe he finds Hunu in behind a little bit quicker instead of driving forward. I think that could be one thing that even just cleaning up 10% of those dribbling actions, that could make Minnesota a lot more dangerous as this year progresses. That was my first thought. Is he? Well, I thought of that one um, interception that Ariaga had on yeah. him in the second half, where yeah. Ariaga just like stood up and <laughs> tackled him on the dribble, and he was like basically a brick wall. Um, so I, when you said that, I thought of that action, and and that is one of the things that we've seen with dribblers in this league, right? Maybe that stat doesn't always show up in your favor, but I I would say too, it's his teammates around him understanding. Okay, he's gonna want to get on the dribble. We have to not run away from him. Actually, come and provide an option. And I think that's one of the things that's really difficult to fix in your brain when you when you see someone who's good in an isolating one v one situation. Yeah, you want to give them enough space to go and and isolate themselves. 
but you have to find someone who is that supportive player. I, I don't know if it's always Reynoso. Maybe it's his supporting outside back. So he knows at all times he has someone to dish the ball off to. So he's not in those crunching tackles all the time. A little counterintuitive so, there, but yeah. I really do think that works. You see that with Messi. Um, yeah. Maybe. I mean, he's a pretty good dribbler, so he's <laughs> passable. I'd say passable. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, Jordan, we've talked it. We've talked Minnesota. Let's shift over to Seattle here. A lot of players missing. Both Roald Dahn brothers. Nico mm-hmm. Ladero, Jordan Morris, obviously. Stefan Fry. Uh, knew who. We missed that that uh, knew who, and I forgot already the, the matchup there. But either way, thank you. Who knew? Who knew Appreciate knew that. Who, who knew, who and knew, knew who? we would want that matchup so bad? You did. You knew we wanted it. Jordan, what did you see from the Seattle Sounders in this game, uh, even with a, a kind of strange starting a lineup in terms of their personnel? So Seattle is playing in this three back still that they have yep. implemented at the beginning of the season. And I would say it start it, it shifted throughout the entire game. I would mm-hmm. say their base formation shifted. It started as a three, four, two, one. And I think that this in ways really worked the best for them. Um, there are three center backs, uh, Ariago, Sissoko and, um, Yamar. Yeah. Yamar. Yep. We're, um, Pretty solid for, for the most part. And that is really, I, for the, minus Ahsoka, I would say the stability has really been there for, if you're looking at the, going up the, the formation for Seattle, they've had so many changes. Um, and what I liked about this 3421 is it shifted, it, Rui Diaz is the target player and he does things that are just absolutely incredible and it, Shows you even in this game where I feel like Seattle really struggled to find a rhythm, he did, he can show up and figure out how to break other teams down. But underneath him was Montero and Madronda. And I, I liked this setup for them, having them tucked inside. At least, at least for the most part, Montero was a little bit more narrow than Madronda, but it allowed that outlet for Seattle to find Rui Diaz, and then there is a supporting run of Montero and maybe a through run of Madronda. And we saw that combination a few different times. When Seattle shifted in the middle of the game to a 3-5-2 and they put Montero and Rui Diaz up top, I think it was when Atencio came in and maybe 30 minutes left in the game. I didn't think that worked as well because Montero couldn't get on the ball. There was a huge gap. When they did clear it, there wasn't as much support for Rui Diaz to find that connection. Um, it seemed to lack that cohesion. And I, I do think in the Joe Seattle, we talked a lot about them last week, right? There was questions about how does Seattle do this? Is it plug and play? Is it um, their culture? And I think that Still losing one to zero and having a pretty solid performance with the amount of changes that they had, it was good, but it didn't. It didn't feel the confident Seattle that we have come to know. Yeah, this this was not Seattle's best performance of the year. I think they mm-hmm. had opportunities to win this game, and obviously when you concede in the 81st minute, you were in the game until almost the end of this whole darn thing. But I don't think they looked especially dangerous on the ball. And that's what Minnesota United forced them into doing or forced them into into trying to be dangerous on the ball because they were pressing and Seattle was kind of trying to build out of the back, but they had some really odd positioning. And and they're in this 3-4-2-1 that sometimes did look like a 3-5-2 depending on Montero and Jimmy Madronda even in that first half. Seattle would sometimes rotate one of those midfield players or even one of those attacking players into the wing back spot 
So sometimes Danny Leva would go and push out wide right, and Kellen Rowe would shoot up the right side, and so Leva would be the right wing back. And then later Madronda would go and play left wing back, and Brad Smith would shoot up the left side. And, and Seattle then would build up in this big, giant U-shape. You have the three center backs. You have uh, one of the midfielders then playing wing back, sending the other wing back high and wide on the strong side. Then you have the other wing back on the weak side high. And then, and then maybe it would be Joao Paulo playing as a six still, but just isolated, so incredibly isolated. And I could not figure out for the life of me what the reasoning was behind that because it was deliberate. You could tell the rotations that they were putting out there were intentional. But it, it almost never worked for them. The distances between their players were so large. There wasn't a lot of, of readily available combination play. Even if Danny Leva gets the ball in the right wing back spot, even if Jimmy Madranda gets the ball in the left wing back spot, they didn't really have anybody to combine with. They didn't really have anywhere to go with the ball besides hitting a hopeful long ball up to Raul Ruiz Diaz. And maybe he'd win it and play it down to Montero and they could go. Maybe not. Minnesota United had Debassi and they had Kalman back there to deal with those situations. And I just, it felt, it felt so disjointed to me from Seattle. And they, they got it together a little bit in, at the end of the first half. Montero got more involved on the ball and he was starting to pull some strings and that worked a lot better for them. But it, mm-hmm. it just, I couldn't figure out what Seattle was trying to do in this game or what the point of what they were doing was. I like how you brought that rotation up because I didn't even notice that, honestly. I, I was, I, I feel like it felt so different from what we've seen from Seattle. And I think a lot of that has to do with just the personnel. And yes, these players were good enough to play in the game, but I think Seattle didn't adapt their game plan to the characteristics of these players. When you have the rolled ons in there and you have, I know they haven't had Ladero, but the way that Seattle likes to play on that quick transition, when you have a rolled on in there who is good on the dribble and good at holding the ball up and allowing players like their outside wingbacks to get forward into the attack, this is a completely different game for Seattle. And I think they really just lack that. You don't get that with um, Leva that much or Madronda. Those are, Madronda is a stretch type of player, right? He's not going to dribble out of situations and hold the ball and allow players to get up the field. So then you really are looking at Joao Paulo to hold the ball and allow players to advance. But that's a lot of pressure on him in the spot that he's playing so deep in the midfield. So I think they lacked that connector. And I, I think that's why it felt more the most like Seattle when Montero did drop in underneath Rui Diaz because he allowed to be that he was allowed to be that link player a little bit a little bit more. Um, but I feel like they just didn't adapt. They didn't have that connecting piece that dribbles out of the midfield and allows them to advance players as they counterattack. And on the other side, Joe, don't you feel like Minnesota did a good job of keeping players home and saying, okay, we're going to attack. But then when we are transitioning, I don't think Seattle ever was in a transition moment where they were outnumbering the back line for Minnesota. Minnesota just really cared for that space and behind them and saying, all right, you guys can come at us, but we're going to have numbers and you have to beat us and be better than us. And it just didn't happen. Yeah. And one thing I'm thinking about now, thinking about the transition moments for Seattle that really weren't there. I didn't see Brad Mm -hmm. Smith get forward on the left side all that much. I didn't see Kellen Rowe get forward on the right side from their wingback spots. And I, I'm generally hesitant to buy into the, you know, Minnesota United are attacking out wide, and so they're pinning the wingbacks back, which then means the wingbacks can never get forward. I feel like that gets framed as, 
gospel almost in that if you have an attacking player on one side, that that outside defender for the other team can never get forward and you're just going to pin them back. I don't think that's really how soccer works. But I think there was some validity to that idea in this game because Minnesota United's primary attacking method that I noticed from that, their primary attacking pattern, was just trying to pull out Brad Smith or pulling out Kellen Rowe and playing in behind them, playing into that pocket outside of the center backs. Mm-hmm. And that's where the goal comes from, from Robin Ludd. It's Nico Henson getting into that space after uh, Reynoso plays him there. Madrondo's trying to get forward on that left side for Seattle, but he can't because they don't have the ball. And so then they get exposed and then Robin Ludd crashes the back post and it's 1-0. I think Minnesota, credit to them, they did make life challenging for Kellen Rowe and for Brad Smith, who those those wingback spots are supposed to be really important to how Seattle attack. They provide the width. They provide some of the direct speed, especially when you're without Christian Roldan. And, and that just wasn't there. Maybe it was because they were being pinned back for 90 minutes. Maybe it's just because Seattle struggled to find attacking rhythm. I'm guessing it's a little bit of both. But Jordan, you're, you're absolutely right. Seattle just didn't threaten in transition. And I think that's their most dangerous attacking phase, more so than possession. And I like what you were just saying, too, about the channels and how important those are. It was important for Minnesota. They were trying to um, utilize... I think there was at the beginning of this podcast, I said, I, I think that this Seattle team, you have to be brave and try to attack through the central channels, but I think it has to start or the central channel, but it has to start wide. And I, if you can pull some players wide, especially Jao Paulo or Danny Leva, they found themselves with Minnesota's overload in typically the right channel, right? Yeah. I felt like in the second half, Reynoso really drifted to the right and from there, if you can quickly find that space between the back line that you've pushed back through a um, an overlapping movement or whatever it may be, pushed it back into the 18, then there's space at the top of the box where we saw many shots for Minnesota and maybe not all of them on frame, as that has been an issue for them this year. <laughs> but um, that type of movement, especially from Reynoso, he, he recognized that the left side defensively for Seattle – was a little bit susceptible. You have Sissoko, you had Madronda there who dropped in later in the game. So he decided to get after it. And the overlapping work of Taylor and you bring in um, Nico Hansen, these players are attacking-minded players in a lot of ways. And I feel like they really utilize that that right space, not always trying to get to the end line and trying to cross, but by pulling Jao Paulo or that other holding midfielder over to say, all right, we've now pulled you out of the space where we want to attack, which is right in front of those three center backs who've been pushed back into their 18. I just feel like Minnesota United are the New England revolution of the Western Conference. Maybe the budget New oh, England really? revolution. Just okay. because – so they, they play the same shape, and I know that's not the best observation because it is so fluid and, and formations are always changing. <laughs> yeah. But both coaches really like that 4-2-3-1, even though Bruce Miranda didn't do that this past weekend. Anyway, we're going to set that aside. They each have <laughs> a real playmaking number 10. Carles Hill is the MVP in the league this season mm-hmm. as far as I am willing to go. But Emmanuel Reynoso is right up there. They have some ball winners in midfield. Hassani Dotson is a player I really enjoy watching for Minnesota United. But then most of all, I feel like Bruce Arena and Adrian Heath think very similar things about tactics. And in that, I mean, they don't really think about them a whole lot. Um, they, they're more, you know, I'm going to set players up in positions that make sense and are logical, but then they're just going to play. Right, Bruce Arena lets mm-hmm. the Revolution play. He lets Carles Hill do his thing. Adrian Heath lets Minnesota United play. He lets Reynoso play. He lets Fragapane play. I think I think there's a lot of similar 
attributes between these two teams. And so we see Minnesota United play in a way that makes sense. They press high. They have the energy to do that. They have the players to do that in most spots. They attack and transition quickly. They try to overload logical spaces in the field. I think, I mean, they're up to sixth in the Western Conference right now. I think they're going to be a dangerous team this season. If I'm looking at Minnesota United on the schedule, I'm not looking forward to that game. They have the talent on an individual level to beat me. They have the talent on a team-wide basis to beat me. They can expose some some of my weaknesses. I just feel like... I feel like if you sat Adrian Heath and Bruce Arena down in a room, they would get along. And maybe that's not true, but it just it feels like I can't get past that Revolution uh, Minnesota United comparison. Yeah. So there's my little tangent as I, we're wrapping this thing up. I like that. That's interesting and something that I'm going to look for similarities between the two <laughs> teams. But I, in the the in, in the end, Joe, like I feel like that's so much of a manager's job at this stage is these players know how to play the game and they know, you know, tactics and they know formations and all that. But if you don't know how to feel out a game, if you don't know the feeling of, all right, the best decision here is actually not to play it into the front runner. It's to bring it back out and pull this defense out a little bit. If you don't know what it, what the feeling is like in those certain situations. And it's hard to be the best team in this league. And so that is underrated, I would say, just giving your players the freedom to make mistakes or to make decisions that maybe aren't your decision, but you trust that they have the ability to make the right decision at that particular moment. These players are good. They're smart. They know what they're doing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Jordan, Minnesota United, I just was looking at the results. Uh, They're cranking right now. I mean, and they haven't Mm -hmm. been dominating every game, but they've been on a really strong run of form. That's four, five, six, seven, eight, nine games with only one loss in that and a lot of wins. So they are moving in the Western Conference. Seattle, not quite as much, but still, I mean, when they get these pieces back that they're missing, uh, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with. And they still are, to be honest, in most of these games. They've got Austin on Thursday. Jordan, thanks for taking time to chat with me today. We're going to chat again this week. I don't know if Taylor told you this, but we're we're both doing the uh, U.S. Women's National Team reviews for their Olympic Games. So it'll be you, me, and Taylor over on the Total Soccer Show. So listeners, if for some insane reason you listen to us, but you don't listen to the Total Soccer Show, go fix that because you get to hear Jordan and I later this right. week. And you get to hear Taylor and Joe like all the time. So <laughs> you definitely should fix that. <laughs> Jordan, thanks again for joining me. I do appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Thanks, everybody, for listening, too. And I know one of those questions that we got from our listeners this week was about Minnesota. So hopefully yep. we gave you some of that some of that answers. Even though we didn't do listener questions, we kind of did. Yeah, we're, we're, we're doing the most, Jordan. We're wetting whistles left and right. <laughs> Thank you again, everybody, for listening. And we'll be back again soon.